0: This Tonight with Alan and Rob. Rob, I've got news for you. What's up? We've got listeners all across the world. That's a pretty sweet deal. I'm kind of shocked if I'm being honest. Somebody from Israel even wants to listen to you, Rob. That's shocking.
1: Well, or they stumbled upon it and were wondering how these dipshits got a podcast. It's not that hard, if I'm being honest.
0: Yeah, that, that's probably true. They probably found our podcast when they uh, typed Recess in the search bar. In, uh, in an attempt to find M-Crit and then stumbled upon us. That's probably how it happened.
1: How much of a kick in the gut would that be <laughs> if you're looking for M-Crit and you came across us?
0: Oh, man, right? Uh, well, I'm the youngest in my family. I got youngest of my three siblings. So, uh, you know, like uh, I'm used to that feeling. You're used to being a disappointment? Oh, no, yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. All right, Rob, we're going to talk about waveform capnography today. And by we, I mean you. Yeah. I like
1: waveform capnography. I think it's a. I think it's a pretty important. I don't. I'm really hesitant to use the word skill. If I'm being honest, I think it's actually more of a mindset than a skill uh, to be able to understand waveform capnography and end tidal CO two.
0: Yeah, that's a bit existential uh, for me. Um, I'm a simple guy. So, uh, where do you want to start on this? Um, I don't know. Like, so
1: let's let's start with CO two waveform under and and how we use it how about prototypically today? Okay, go for it. Right? So when I'm thinking about the EMERGE department, when I'm thinking about um even pre-hospital opportunities and and in the ICU at times as well, the the commonplace that I think, and I'm when I say think, I'm really hoping that people are using end CO2 consistently and diagnosing the waveform to help drive their care is definitely in cardiac arrest, right? So using end-tidal CO2 in that, in that moment um, to determine whether you potentially might have a return of spontaneous circulation coming in between your rhythm checks. Just to be clear, I said rhythm checks, not pulse checks. <laughs> now, with that... The CO2, a massive increase in the amount of CO2 between those um, rhythm checks for no other reason can have good correlation to you might have a pulse coming here and that between your rhythm checks... This person is just in a low flow state, but yet the CO2 is starting to move. You have um, blood moving through the uh, lung tissue uh, and you're starting to have an exchange of that oxygen and CO2 across the membrane uh, so that CO2 is actually going through. And it's a good, can be a good marker of perfusion in that case. Are you, do you use that in the ICU for that?
0: Well, Rob, I also work in the emergency department as well. And uh, yes, to both. In fact, I think the uh, American Heart Association actually has uh, entitled, or sorry, waveform capnography as one of their standards to cardiac arrest care, if I remember. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm like 95% sure, yeah. Right. Anywho, but yeah, and, and like speaking from a cellular level, essentially, if all your cells were anoxic before in cardiac arrest, you do a little compressy, compressy. And then um, because uh, due to just good resuscitative efforts, you get ROSC. So now you get actually spontaneous blood flow. So all those anoxic cells actually then get oxygen and then exchange the CO2 into the bloodstream. So that when you are bagging them, um, you then see a spike in the uh, end tidal waveform capnography on bagging. Right. Is that what you're essentially saying? I love it. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. And magic number is 10. In uh, when you if they're in arrest and you're doing CPR and your end title is less than ten, that means it's not good enough. It needs to be at least ten or higher. I'm guilty of that because I got weak arms. I uh, I'm serious. The last time I gotta tell you story was last time I was doing CPR on a big dude. Uh, um, I could only get an end title of eight, and there's. And my colleague, uh, Andrew Campbell, if you're uh, listening here, uh, he's a good guy. Uh, he, he was watching me from the end of the bed. He said, hey, are you getting tired up there? And believe me, I took that cue of, oh my God, yes. So there's two things I'm getting out of this. If forever, if we
1: ever get a sponsor, it should be a gym. And then Alan should only do arm day. And number
0: two, why are you doing compressions just with your arms? No gym, CrossFit, baby. Oh, okay. and then the ROSC would be like, so say your compressions, you got your end tidal of 10 throughout, and then you get a spike from 10 to 20. That's probably suggestive of ROSC during CPR.
1: Totally. Okay. Tied up in a bow. I love it. Okay. So that actually took my second point, um... Thanks. Uh, So let's just scrap what I plan to talk about when we're talking about compression uh, utilization and whether you're doing good compressions or not. So let's just move on. What a great collaboration we have
0: together. Okay. So the other piece that this next one... If you're curious, sorry. We are big proponents of evidence to um, to support the way we, why we do things. We rarely rely on anecdote. Um, and, uh, it was actually studied in the AHA, uh, by a guy named Hamrick in 2014, but it was even before then, but his, uh, one of his papers, um, validated anti So, and so, that was five years ago.
1: I guess we're putting that in the show notes now. Cool. Okay. So, um, the other uh, one I want to talk about is not for arrest, for cardiac arrest, for, for waveform um, use for CO2, but in something that we, Ellen and I debated this before we we did the show here on whether procedural sedation should be something that obviously you're doing this with, or whether this is kind of a push forward game changer for you. And perhaps this is a reminder, and perhaps this is new information to you, but CO2 tracking for procedural sedation it should be baseline that should be gold that is gold standard best case that we're doing and if we have a an, an rt or a tertiary therapist that's listening to this and i can you know sometimes rts will, will roll their eyes at this whole idea but when i'm talking about this clearly this patient is not intubated we do not have a closed loop going on for this oxygen oxygen circuit we're talking about using the, you know, the nose prongy thing with the, it looks like a teardrop, I guess, like they yep. have a snotty nose or something. Bling. Yeah, sure. Yeah. like that So that's what we're at. We're talking about here for measuring the CO2 and procedural sedation. So let's just say 25 year old bro goes head over his mountain bike bars, smashes into a tree and absolutely like obliterates his left arm, we'll say. And we need to Give a chance to reset this arm, get it in line before this gentleman is going to get a surgery consult. I mean, how many times have you done this in the emergency department in the last month, right? It it happens often, especially here in Canada, um, active people in the summertime because, well, we can't go anywhere in the wintertime. So if we're thinking about this, we give some drugs to this fellow, maybe some propofol, um, you know, maybe some ketamine is possible. Depends on your shop. Depends on what uh, the physician's preference is in that regard or, or, or the talk that you've had with your colleague. But this patient definitely can lose their airway and they can go apneic on you. And as someone who hunts for apnea a lot... It's easy to miss. You can miss apnea. It's not as if it's something that's just mind-blowing that someone would miss this. So for these individuals, putting on that end CO2 um, and looking at the waveform of that CO2 as a trend, and I'm going to underline the word trend. I'm doing it in the air, I promise underwrite the word trend because the number doesn't necessarily mean massive amount it's just one data point i'm talking about trending and if that co2 is starting to climb and climb and climb during your procedural sedation that means that patient is trapping their co2 and they're not exhaling sufficiently and they might be bradipnic or apneic and that's a problem We need to open up that airway and potentially support their respiratory status until we get another shot at realigning that left arm for this for this fellow
0: Does that make sense to you? Yeah, because it's kind of like hypoventilation, right? So, um, but I I think where it could be tricky though, is if you're hypoventilating, and if you've been hypoventilating for a few minutes, you'll have a high entitled CO2. But actually, if you are apneic, then it'll actually be like low or zero. Yeah, Yeah,
1: super good point. And
0: it's kind of like departure from the baseline of what they were before.
1: Exactly, hence why the trend is so important. Mm -hmm. And realistically, that's when our knowledge of CO2 being... I'm hesitant to use the word analogous, but very, very closely linked to perfusion through the lungs because you have that gas exchange helps you because if you have zero for a CO2 for this fellow who's getting a procedural sedation, one of two things is happening. he's completely obstructed and apneic or he's dead. So either way, do something about it. Assess your patient.
0: Or he's holding his breath. Either way, it's a problem. Yeah, that means your analgesia is not good enough. Weird. And propofol alone is probably not going to help them with their pain. But that's a whole different story. Um, you know, because Rob and I are huge on evidence-based practice, I do have to counter what you're saying about uh, procedural sedation and entitle. I, I, I'm going to slap you in the face. No, I'm serious. Because I remember reading a paper uh, a couple of years ago talking about waveform capnography and procedural sedation and whether or not it actually changes uh, patient-oriented outcomes, like whether or not they die, whether or not uh, they have like morbidity, you know, that type of thing. And it was a systematic review published in Emergency Medicine Journal in tw- 2015. And the author um, is uh, Dudney and all. And we'll put it in the show notes. But uh, in their systematic review, they actually did not find that there were any less safety events uh, with waveform capnography uh, than with traditional monitoring equipment. So just like leads and SPO2 and whatnot. But then again, I'm skeptical of that systematic review because I think what they were looking and synthesizing weren't the actual outcomes that we were looking for. So it would be like uh, apnea time etc so i think we're looking a little bit at two different outcomes per se um, but duty and all did say uh in their authors recommendations that uh, there's not enough high quality evidence to really say don't just do entitle. they say still use it if that if you've got it so anyway i just want to that's add actually that. really interesting
1: i mean if you think yeah. about that like i mean I, number one i love the fact that it's patient oriented outcomes um, I think that's a really massive forward piece of, of research going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Paramedic 2 trial did a great job of that. They actually talked to patients. Shocking idea.
0: Um, Shout out to the Q Word podcast. If you haven't yeah. listened to that podcast, they break down the Paramedic 2 trial and they translate that into nursing practice. We'll put that in the show notes.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. And that Paramedic 2 trial really did. They actually talked to patients on what a patient-oriented outcome is because in healthcare we have a very different view of that idea right and so uh anyways move we'll that to talk for a different day but i think it's that's an awesome thought and a good point and, and way to way to challenge that piece and make me look like an a-hole on our podcast okay cool so moving on um let's talk about let's talk about copd you cool with that or do yep. you wanna, do oh you wanna...
0: man that's my uh that's how i pay the mortgage is that your jam and that's bread and butter i'm uh i'm not a big sugar guy i don't like sweets
1: you're sweet enough yeah
0: Okay. So COPD, let's talk about this. So COPD,
1: same kind of idea here, right? These, these individuals with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, we're talking about individuals who live in a elevated CO2 world to begin with, right? They do have an elevated level because of whatever pathology is going on, their emphysema, their chronic bronchitis, whatever's happening. But in the exacerbations, I think this is a phenomenal tool to help with your assessment. Um, because what you get an opportunity to do is trend their CO2 levels and actually look at the waveform and see what's happening because alterations in the waveform do provide clues on what is happening in these patients so when I think of COPD exacerbations let's just let's go with chronic bronchitis um, I think about an individual with a prolonged IE ratio um, their inspiration time is much shorter than their expiration time because that expiration time is they're trying to blow off their co2 a lot of these individuals go to Uh, lung function clinics where they're taught to purse lip breathe in an effort to auto peep themselves open up those um, open up the uh, the bronchi and 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 get as much co2 out as possible when they're trapping so therefore they're going to have that prolonged ie time with that you're there's a really good possibility you're going to see an alteration in instead of a nice rectangle uh, CO2 plus, you're going to see potentially a uh, incremental increase or a shark fin. It's often referred to as maybe a dolphin fin. I'm poor with my marine biology, but that's fine. Um, (laughs) But it it does gradually go up to the point of the top of, of your end title, giving you your number. For this, again, This is where I often have a back and forth with my colleagues and it's such a good debate is I actually don't care about the number necessarily. I care about the trend. And for me, the trend is, are we winning or are we losing? For me, it goes back to sports. I did not show up to lose today. And for me, losing is, I would rather, I like winning way more than I like losing, clearly. And I want to win a lot. And so for these people with healthcare uh, problems and their COPD exacerbation, I want to work at winning. And this trend gives me an idea of whether what we're doing is the right thing or whether we are going the wrong way and we're making a fast break towards the BiPAP intubation train. Um, so it gives me an idea of whether the MDIs we're using, because MDIs, uh, we've been talking every time about MDIs versus nebulized medication.
0: What's it called? A medical device inhaler, MDI.
1: Is that actually what it means? I, I, I probably wrote it out in nursing it, school. I, I think assume. so. It looks
0: like a trumpet. And you plug the...
1: Uh, he's Ellen's doing hand expressions, but he, the thing is, he doesn't realize is that this is an audio podcast and not a video podcast.
0: I'm doing it like how I teach patients, man. You know, with the puffer, you put it in the chamber, and then we'll the... put a picture of an yeah. MDI.
1: Yeah, on the on anyway. Sorry, Adam, yeah. yeah, good talk. Um, anyways, so are we? Uh, are the agonists that we're using the appropriate ones. So in, in Canada here, um, Ventolin, uh, uh is gonna be the winner for us uh, as, as our bronchodilator. Uh, Atrovent also often used for these individuals. And then depending on where we need to go and, and other medications, but it gives us a good indicator of what we're doing. Is it right or are we doing the wrong thing or are we doing not enough of it? Um, again, I don't care about the number. The number is not what's winning. But that nasal teardrop does help me
0: know if we're making benefits here. Making gains. I don't know about you, Rob. I've worked in a few emergency departments. And for some reason, those nasal prongs with the teardrop are incredibly hard to find. They're hidden in the respiratory supplies under the 10 pounds of nasal prong extension tubing and by all the non-rebreather masks. And there's only like four of them. It doesn't make any sense because how often do we see more patients with or how how what ratio do we see patients with oxygenation and ventilation problems? Right. I would say it's probably 50 50. Mm, yeah. Like the COPD is probably a mix of both. But they, it's, it's, if it's a COPD exacerbation, they're probably drowsy or confused. You get rid of their CO2 and they're back to the normal selves and probably go outside and have a smoke after. So I find it very interesting in 2019 that we, we know about this technology. It costs nothing, yet it's so hard to find sometimes. Um, and then we always think that it needs to be an attachment that goes into a bedside monitor. But then there's those ones that you can buy off Amazon that are portable, that cost like 100 bucks. connect your prongs there and voila there you go there's your there's your uh, ventilation status I just find it very interesting yeah I, w- I would agree with you and, and often I
1: actually find if I'm teaching in a department I'll go I'll walk with a learner over to the RT the respiratory therapist in Canada we have those uh, everywhere thank goodness they're a phenomenal colleague for us um, and ask where they are and tell them why we're interested in using them uh, and usually after a good conversation they're like oh they, we find the treasure chest of, of, of these these things sitting around The other thing to bring up is I mean, we do have individuals living, listening from other countries. And in Canada, I know I'm guilty of it. I don't think about the cost of a piece of equipment yeah. if I think it's going to help somebody. And I'm sure other places that thought process is the same. But I do know that at times cost does come in for other countries. So that's it is something to consider um,
0: here. I don't even think about it. I honestly don't. Yeah, we're very lucky to uh, live where we live. Hey, Actually, on the topic of uh, having those like portable hundred dollar whatever from Amazon, those uh, those those actual end title. Are you being paid by this company? It sounds like you're hawking them. <laughs> I know. And I'm doing the hand gesture. To be clear, well. we are not paid by these, these companies. Yeah, we, we make no money. Believe me, we make no money. I live in a shoebox. Okay. So, uh, you, so those portable end title, uh, monitors, um, they're good for transport too. Yeah, without a doubt. And, and so for transport, I think that's probably the next
1: one on the list that I want to talk about. Um, so for transport, Nurses who are in hospital, maybe transferring from a community hospital to a large academic center or transferring, I don't know, uh, just over to the, C- the CT machine, you know, you know the the, the truth telling machine, wherever you're going, you need to transport patients that potentially have CO2 problems, potentially, as Alan talked about in our neuro podcast, uh, a t- a traumatic brain injuries with increasing ICP, where that is a big use there for waveform capnography. Um... Those transport monitors are money. And let's just go with the idea that you're traveling from a small hospital to a big one and you're in an ambulance. The big old diesel ambulance is revved up and it's going at, you know, whatever RPM and you can't hear anything back there. Um, CO2 is a phenomenal way to do a check on whether your patient is still alive. So let's, let me just put a scenario to you. Really sick, intubated, sedated patient you have entitled CO2 on there because you're a rock star nurse and the patient goes into PEA arrest. You can't feel a pulse. You're not going to check one because the, there's a vibration in the cabin anyway. So you're not going to know. How do you know the patient's in arrest without CO2 until they go blue, until something else goes horribly wrong?
0: Yeah. When the blood pressure cuff goes cuff error and then you push it again and it says cuff error and you push it again and you're still trying to find the pulse but you can't because pulse checks are dumb
1: that's never happened to me i don't know what has <laughs> ever happened to you
0: i mean but realistically
1: no totally absolutely it's
0: impossible because uh, end title, you just get a flat line and there you go and then stats will take forever to drop what two three minutes totally. and then it'll be like 99 98 96 90 88 and by, Seventy and by that 40, point you yeah. have
1: massive damage yeah. that's really horrible, yeah, right? Exactly. Whereas yeah. you're going to see that precipitous drop in the CO2 way before. Oh yeah, absolutely, right? So okay, there's that. The, um, the one more I wanted to put onto the COPD was for the for me one of the scariest patients in the emerge. It, it's like a butt pucker factor eleven is going to be the sick asthmatic, right? Mm. The young asthmatic who is, you know, for all intents and purposes, a healthy person, but just has very horrible um, uh, reactive airway disease. These individuals, if someone has shown a willingness to get intubated as an asthmatic oh. previously, like that is that's scary to me quite a bit. And to go back to the COPD talk, I want to know in these patients if their CO2 is climbing with their bronchoconstriction because I want to have anesthesiology called if that's what my shop does to to intubate these patients or I want to have the doc have a mental preparation moment to get this intubation going. I want to have the right drugs way beforehand. I want to be overly prepped and then if it gets to that point, I want my physician to have so much cognitive load taken off of him or her that we know that this has been happening and trending towards it, that they are feeling good and confident about tubing. It's a, as opposed to the holy shit, I need to tube this asthmatic feel. So this is where we're, are, we're working with our colleagues to support each other in as much way as possible. Um, and I say, I think this is a phenomenal way to track that, that trend and give a bit more time to work with our colleagues, our physician colleagues to get a, a, a good mindset when they're tubing if they need to for this patient.
0: All right. Anything left?
1: Last one. Let's go with. Let's go with the not proven. Let's go with the. I couldn't find any massive data on this, but the physiology checks out. I think it's an awesome idea. Around understanding whether you've gotten mechanical capture, for transcutaneous pacing.
0: And so wait. So getting end tidal waveform capnography, as a marker of. Effective trans Q pacing for symptomatic bradycardia.
1: Right. And right now if you're rolling your eyes and being like, Oh I'll just drop a transvenous pace or no big deal, bud. <laughs> you clearly work in a massive hospital and good for you, that's awesome. But not everyone does. Some of nurses work on the street as a transport individuals. Some work in the air. Some work in small
0: hospitals where a physician is an hour away. Large majority of care is not delivered in academic level one centers. Totally. The vast majority of the care is done in smaller hospitals, pre-hospital. So that's important to know. For sure.
1: So if you think about transcutaneous pacing, when was the last time you saw transcutaneous pacing and think about trying to figure out whether this person has mechanical capture yes i realize the textbook says oh you'll have an increase in loc it isn't a beat to beat increase in loc it's not as if they're like gcs3 to a gcs15 asking for a burger right like it's not how this works these people we want to know whether we have capture we want to know now because lack of oxygen lack of perfusion results in damage to tissue right so as we talked about tidal co2 is very good for being analogous to amount of blood flow or perfusion through our lungs and when we increase that perfusion when we hopefully get mechanical capture during transcutaneous pacing in theory the tidal co2 should increase it should increase in its size of the pleth as well as the number that's happening and that Can be indicative to you that you have achieved some mechanical capture there. Again, like I said, Alan and I are very, very evidence based people. I couldn't find a ton of evidence on this, but there was a case study I saw. It looks great. It makes sense from a physiology perspective. And what's the harm in putting it on somebody? It's not as if it's going to be negligent. You're putting on nasal prongs, essentially. And you can continue to do your normal assessments with it, but it could be beneficial for you to understand whether you have increased perfusion for these people.
0: Yeah, I mean, it did come from a case report. Um, So it's someone writing about a particular case that they encountered that was interesting and there's potential from it. I'm skeptical if this could be reproduced. And I think you're skeptical as well as as we should be. You should be skeptical of everything you read, see and do and hear including this podcast you should be skeptical uh because that is a good practitioner and uh listen to ken mill on the skeptics guide by the way. shout out to ken um good guy for sure yeah, he taught us to be skeptical so uh i'm i i would love to see this in a larger uh research study where they were to look at this and actually apply rigorous academic standards or uh, uh, research standards, like actually control the intervention group and whatnot, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, food for thought for now. I mean, what's the, what, I can't see any superficial patient uh, adverse patient oriented outcomes really by slapping on nasal prongs, except if you rely on that and you delay your destination time. I, that's the only thing I can see right now. Sorry. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. with it. Okay. Life. Let's wrap this up. Um, okay. how many points do you want to say three,
1: four, six why do we have to put numbers on this just let me talk
0: Uh, hey the floor is yours okay so
1: pushing forward for waveform um, diagnosis of of, uh, co2 the the ones that the bleeding edge pieces that we want you to kind of just consider and think about is your procedural sedations is this patient aptic are they obstructed and if so intervene as appropriate COPDers COPDers, are you winning or are you losing because you need to be winning that's the game plan and if you're losing change something up because you need to change and start winning asthmatics for those who show a propensity to get intubated as an asthmatic can help you out to determine where things are going take that cognitive load off of your physician colleagues to work better as a team and last oh transport as well clearly uh, the loud rumbly ambulance the rumbling down the hallway to ct whatever it is and then finally what about with transcutaneous pacing is that something that uh, could work we we'll would be very interested if you happen to find any more papers about it or if um, you have a case of you've seen it happen we'd love to hear it please like get a hold of us on Twitter. We're pretty active um, at Recess Tonight um, on the Twitters and uh, as well as Instagram. Anything else you want to say, or are you done yapping?
0: I think you did most of the yapping here. Yeah, that's that's a reasonable point. I'll I'll shut up. I'm done. All right. This was Recess Tonight. Take care.